You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this installment of our RSAC 365 podcast series. Thank you for tuning in. We have a great podcast lined up for you today, Networking with the Right People with Dan Glass and Brandon Williams. Here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app so you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Dan and Brandon and dive into today's topic. My name is Dan Glass. I am the Corporate Chief Information Security Officer and Vice President of NTT Data Services, which is in the NTT family. Uh, It's one of the largest companies in the world. I think we have about 500 brothers and sisters of other companies within the NTT umbrella. Uh, Previous to this role, I was the Chief Information Security Officer of American Airlines, and I've been in uh, the information security field for over 20 years now. Yes. Hi, um, my name is Brandon Williams, and I'm the head BISO, Business Information Security Officer for MEFG in the Americas. Uh, and I also own threat detection and endpoint security here. Um, prior to this, I was at a number of security companies, including companies like RSA and VeriSign, and I've also been in the business for a little over 20 years. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you being here. So when security noobs ask what's the best way to break into the industry or how do I advance my career, they're often encouraged to find networking opportunities, and networking opportunities abound. There are local events, major conferences, or even small group meetups through different associations. So we know that networking has many advantages and has the potential to open doors of opportunity. But how do you identify the right people to network with? And more importantly, what do you bring to the table? I want to start with discussing one of the key objectives of most professional and workforce development trainings, which is to help individuals become more well-rounded. So this question is for both of you, but Dan, let's start with you. Why does being well-rounded matter? Why isn't it enough to just be an expert in a particular role? So being a jack-of-all-trades is something that is specifically important to information security versus maybe some other disciplines where um, to be a a good security person, and when I say good, I mean somebody who can rise up into the the leadership ranks and or become, you know, let's say an architect on the individual contributor path, they, they really need to understand all of IT and they need to understand what they're trying to protect, not just uh, how to configure the devices that help protect or the systems that help protect. So uh, being able to have a, an intelligent conversation with the networking person about how uh, the network is configured or how the routing protocols operate uh, or are configured or, or talking to a server person or the active directory person, uh, the identity person, etc. Understanding what they do, how they do, their pressures, you know, and, and how hard their life is and what the type of, of uh, pain they feel is super important, not just from a security perspective, but also from that networking perspective, because then you're going to make a friend most likely, even if you're giving them bad news, like you can't do it the way you want to, you have to do it this other way. If you're coming from a place of, I get you, I've done what you do, or at least I understand what you do, that typically goes a long way in getting them to trust you more and follow your guidance without having to use the security, quote-unquote, hammer. 
I'd like to just add to that a little bit and say that, you know, part of the reason why I think that jack of all trades is really important is you can become a translator in many cases. So, you know, for me as a business information security officer, I'm responsible for the business units that I uh, interface with. And so I'm driving security there and I'm holding those leaders accountable and being accountable myself to um, the security levels and risk levels inside of that part of the organization. So if I'm unable to understand or, or speak that language, it becomes very difficult for me to really do my job. Um, and, you know, the other thing that's kind of interesting is if anybody who's listening as a developer, you know this, right? Like if you know the base about how things work, you can find the specifics of the search engine in most cases, right? So if you understand the basic words and the basic motions of certain technologies, when you're trying to uh, do something different around it or specific or try to look like an expert, a lot of times that information is readily available on Google, just like a lot of programs today are coded by copying and pasting out of Stack Exchange. So as we think about professional and workforce development, it's obvious based on the topic that we've chosen for today's session that you both value networking. I'd like to hear from each of you, but Brandon, let's start with you this time. Can you share with our listeners your perspective on the importance of relationship building? You both touched upon it and being able to sort of lead and connect with and be a friend to people across all silos. But can you share with our listeners your perspective on the importance of relationship building as it relates to professional development? You know, the, the thing that struck me the most over the years is that, first of all, I think we all know that the tenure of somebody working in a position, it's not normally something you see where somebody's been in a position for 10 years or been with a company for 10 years. It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. It just seems like the norm these days is three to five year stints at various companies. So having a good network and being able to reach into that network when you are looking for a position is super helpful, um, but it's also helpful. Um, as Dan had coached me earlier this year when I was talking about different networking events and trying to choose which ones to go with. He's like, well, you know, I mean, if you network with security people and they get offered a job and they don't want that job, they might be interested in passing your name along if, if they have a good relationship with you. And then the reverse is true as well. Like when I need people, I reach into my network and not only do I look for people who are looking for gigs that I maybe have worked with in the past or, or come highly recommended, but I'll ask people like Dan, hey, Dan, I'm looking for this type of resource. Do you know anybody in your network or know anybody who might be able to fill this? And then one of the things that I've been doing recently as well that's been super helpful is as I'm expanding my team here at MUFG, I've been given some things that are, you know, some challenges we're trying to work with, right? And um, I often use my network of working in previous security firms like RSA and VeriSign and, and other places to see, hey, I'm having a problem with this particular vendor. Who in my network do I know that works at that vendor and can help me get something done? For those of us that were, you know, in the lower ranks 20 years ago, 10 years ago, and those people have moved up. So it's interesting how people that I used to interact with as just sort of, you know, inside sales leaders or field salespeople or even sort of consultants have turned themselves into, you know, VP of global sales and partner and all these other high ranking um, areas. And since, you know, I've kept up with that network and sort of try to be, you know, involved, when I need help, I can reach into that network to ask. And it's actually paid off multiple times this year since I've taken this position where I've had to say, hey, I'm drowning. I need help. This is the thing I'm working on. Can you shine some light on it somewhere? Get somebody to prioritize this on your side to help me out. And uh, it's worked out great. 
So it's not just about, you know, your particular career or your career path or the trajectory of where you're going, but surrounding yourself with people who can help you problem solve in your role. And then also, you know, when you speak to this idea of, you know, people are only in their positions for three to five years, when you have this network of people, you have the ability to then build that team for your longevity and surround yourself with those people that you want to bring in rather than you needing to change things up because the team isn't working for you. Dan, do you have anything to add to that? Well, Brandon, of course, covered a lot of the the points that I would have made if I got to go first, but I didn't, so fine. Um, (laughs) um, Brandon's a smart dude. Um, The only thing I would add is don't be picky and don't think about what somebody can do for you. Think of what you can do for them as well. And I know that's very John F. Kennedy-esque, but... It really is true. I network, I, I love conferences like RSA because I don't just hang out with other CISOs. In fact, I actually try to avoid other CISOs, you know, not, not the whole time because it's inevitable. I, I get into meetings with them. There's, there's vendor events, et cetera. But I also try to spend time with my old crew, the, you know, the hackers, the people who have moved into leadership positions within the security software space or, or they've moved into architecture roles in, in larger companies or have been acquired, et cetera. And I love those engagements because those are, uh, you know, they, they of course see me now. I'm, when I met them, I was a CISO and now I am and, um, and I show up and sometimes I'm in a suit and they make fun of me, but, but those are the people that really get, you know, they remember me and I remember them and they're the people that I call on when I need some advice. And it's not just always going to be, hey, uh, you know, I'm having this challenge at work with the CIO or, you know, I have that network too. And that is important. What Brandon touched on, absolutely 120%. But also don't be shy about, you know, reaching across to somebody that isn't necessarily going to potentially do anything for you because you never know. Uh, and I guess that's the that's my key takeaway is is don't be afraid of networking outside your group. Also, don't be afraid of leaving security to network. Um, in fact, I encourage it. Once again, getting other people's perspectives, the security users, not just the practitioners, people who have to deal with the controls that we put in place and or that we're tasked with protecting their technology. It's really important to get to know them as well and understand, once again, just, you know, what makes them tick. And, and you never know when you have to call in those kind of favors or when they call on you and you coach them or, or give them insight and, and, you know, hey, I'm having trouble with my security guy here. Uh, he just doesn't seem to listen. And, and, I, and I've coached, you know, ICIOs and, or just, you know, people within regular IT jobs on how to deal with their security people if, if their security people are being, you know, sort of obtuse or difficult to work with. So I guess the takeaway is cast the very wide net. So, Dan, I want to follow up on that because I think it's interesting you make the point that, you know, as a CISO, you sort of go back to that older network of folks that you used to work with. And I want to ask about the reverse. So, when you are sort of in that up-and-coming position and you are working your way up to whatever that higher level is that you're aiming toward, how do you go about networking with the more C-level folks? Yeah, I would say don't be shy and don't angle for a job. So if you're shy, obviously the connection will never happen because you're standing on the other side of the room saying, oh my gosh, that's a CISO, I can't talk to them. First of all, they're people, right? They 
probably did what you did not too long ago, and they got you know moved up and thrust into a position that they weren't honestly ready for, um, <laughs> just like everybody else. Um, but then also, you know, don't make that first interaction. Don't ask if they're hiring, or don't you know, make it about security. Like, hey, what's it like to be a CISO, or what pressures are you facing, or what's your greatest concern? What keeps you up at night? Security people love to talk about that kind of stuff, and we'll prattle on for hours. Uh, but if the first thing or, if, if, you know, in that first conversation that comes out, you know, saying, well, do you have any openings? You know, then it becomes transactional and you're like, oh, man, I thought I was, you know, I liked you. And, and now you just, you know, so, yeah, OK, uh, go ahead and submit your resume to HR, you know, at, at that point. And, it's, and, and you've kind of lost that bond that you really could have created. Yeah. Don't be too aggressive in your <laughs> and obvious in your desire to get the job. Brandon, what are some ways that you see yourself able to motivate others, and how has that helped you in your own career? That's a great question because, um, I, you know, I sort of grew up in the industry in a different way than Dan did, um, where I started in small companies doing consulting work. Um, and we started a couple companies, and then I worked for financial services, and then I worked for tech companies and it was consulting and, and, you know, vendor side of things. And one of the things that I learned very quickly was that um, if it was within my same company, what I had to do was, you know, really talk to the person <laughs> and not talk at the person, but have a conversation. And it's okay to ask things like, what are your goals this year? Um, how does your variable compensation work? I know it's sometimes a touchy subject. You're not asking how much they make in variable compensation, but asking them how it works can clue you into ways that um, you might be able to motivate them to work on a project for you um, or work with you towards a common goal. If we're talking about just, you know, motivating people in general, I like to spark curiosity in people. So when somebody's asking or, or wants to know more about a particular topic, I think it's fun to discover together if, if, if we haven't done it already. Like if I, if I haven't been exposed to that technology and can just say, hey, here's a couple things to take a look at and, you know, let's, let's see what you come back with. Um, it's fun to sort of do that together. And it's, I'm an adjunct professor as well, so teaching is in my nature. And, and it's, um, I think that becomes something that can be very motivating. And it does cross disciplines. So having a deep conversation about heart surgery isn't going to be something that everybody might relate to. But having a conversation about identity theft or securing your email. That's something we all deal with every day. So I think that there is a tremendous amount of common ground that can be found. And, and when you find that common ground, that can lead to deeper conversations, which could lead to, you know, motivating people to do things either for you or just motivating them in general. I want to switch gears here and talk a little bit about technology and the technical aspect of professional development. Obviously, technology changes quite rapidly, which requires consistent training. So how important is it to evolve with the technical aspects of your role? And what are some ways that security practitioners can stay connected to their roots while also learning new technologies? I'd like to hear from both of you, but Dan, let's start with you. Okay. So this is an interesting one because, you know, I think over the last, we'll call it five years, Security has been caught a little flat-footed. Um, I wouldn't say everybody in security has been caught flat-footed, but a lot of folks in our area have been caught flat-footed by the emergence of, you know, platform as a service, containerization, uh, DevOps. And there were plenty of people talking about it from a security perspective early on. Um, but 
I don't think enough people were listening or even knew what to do with it. Now, my, my advice to security people is don't, you know, just like networking and, and just like we, we started with about being a jack of all trades, don't just stay in your security bubble. You know, learning the new security technologies, of course, is important. And I think that that's going to happen as part of your, your role or, or just in reading security news and being around security people. Also, spend a few minutes to learn, just at least at an architecture perspective, the different technologies that the people you're trying to protect use. So you don't have to be a programmer to understand how some of the new programming languages, newer, I should say, they're not new, uh, the newer or the, the in vogue programming languages work and what some of the, the security risks of them are. You know, you can start to glean that out or, or how does PaaS work? How does Kubernetes work and Docker? How does, you know, AWS function and what are all the modules and how could, how could your company use it in interesting ways? And then how would you protect it? And that's, that's sort of what my recommendation is. And, and, and I'm picking on those new technologies because that's the du jour, but, but once again, not just reading security news and really going outside your bubble and, and understanding what's going on in the industry as a whole, technology, not security. Brandon? What I would say is that if you've not invested in a basic home lab, you don't have to spend a ton of money. You can find an old machine that you have that's just, you know, is maybe a, a little bit older, it's not your primary machine, and put VMware on there or some other virtualization technology and play with it. And, and there's so much opportunity right now to get education on technologies. Many companies, because we can't travel for education, they're paying for things like Pluralsight or O'Reilly or getting Microsoft or Amazon certifications uh, and, and getting the, the content that goes with it. So take advantage of it. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's fun to go to training. I used to love doing that, but it's just not going to happen for a while now. Now that we have these vast libraries, online delivery, um, I don't see it returning to the way that it used to be. I think that the, the way that we see it now, um, I mean, there will be in class for sure, but like learning remotely and learning these technologies and then, you know, playing with them in your home on a, on a basic network and a basic lab will teach you a lot of what you need to know. And you can even do things like looking on YouTube. I mean, anytime you want to learn how to do something or fix something, it's usually the first website you pull up and see who's recorded a video on how to do that. Um, I mean, there's, there's tons of videos. There's one video I, I saw the other day. It was like a three-hour crash course on object-oriented programming. And by the time you were done, you had a very good understanding of how object-oriented programming worked. You weren't going to be a developer the next day, but you at least had an understanding of how it worked. So the technologies that Dan mentioned are, are definitely high on that list. And I would also add to it that, you know, don't forget that some cloud providers will give you a free tier for a year. So you have sort of a sandbox to play in and you can deploy technologies and learn how to do infrastructure as code and security as code and, and all these other sort of buzzwordy things that we're talking about where, you know, we don't actually do deployments the way we used to. We orchestrate everything. So we push buttons and things magically start to happen. Um, great for IT can be problematic for security if it's not done right. So it's good to, to, to have that understanding and, and leverage the resources that are available to you. That's probably the biggest piece of advice. It leverage the resources that are available to you to, to continue to spark your own curiosity and learn. And Brendan, I think that's a great point. And I think something else that you said, you know, there are just so many opportunities to learn. Their education is so accessible. And I want to delve a little bit deeper into this technology piece because I think it's not access to the information. It's really about adopting a different mindset that 
you should be perhaps learning outside of what you already know, which isn't necessarily where everyone is professionally. So I'd love it if you could each share an anecdotal tale, if you will, of how engaging with others helped you to evolve the way that you think about security, specifically as it relates to security as an IT and business enabler and and where you sort of recall, you know, changing your mindset and being more open to adopting different ideas. Dan, you want to start? Sure. You know, obviously, as I've, I've, I've harped on a few times already, um, you know, getting outside the security bubble is important. Um, you know, I would recommend DevOps Days. It's a local uh, homegrown series of seminars that, that occur uh, around the country, and now uh, it's virtual, um, and they have like, DevOps all day and, and things like that. And, and it's really good because, once again, these aren't security people. Now, sometimes there are security people that speak at these, and that's awesome. Um, but but these are developers, and they are solving problems, and they're showing off how they solve those problems. Brandon mentioned, you know, getting your own server. You, you guys, if, if anybody saw my AWS bill every month for, for how I play, uh, they'd probably be shocked. Uh, I also, even as a CISO, uh, still do that, try to keep up with technology. Now, as it relates to engaging with others, once again, those DevOps, you know, getting outside of our bubble and understanding how people are solving IT problems is important, but also looking at our own technologies. Security has some very powerful IT tools, and we tend to not use them. It's like we have these Ferraris sitting in the garage, and you know, but we only use the left rear tire. It's really important that we look at what can our technologies do, and then go back to IT and say, hey, you know how you're having a problem provisioning you know, this, or you know how you're having a problem doing that, we can help you. Our identity system can enable X or our uh, system management or, or audit software actually has the capability to make the following change for you. Um, you know, the help desk can just click a button instead of having to log into the machine, things like that. Um, because once again, security, we spend a lot of money. We have this software that has incredible rich metrics. Um, and telemetry on almost every system that's in your network, or probably every system that's in your network. And what we should be doing is figuring out a way to tap into that and use it not just for defending, but also how do we enable IT to do more. Brandon, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I want to sort of take it from a, a different angle, um, just based on my background. So, and I, I think Dan falls in the same category to some respect. So I was an IT guy. I started in the career, in my career in the mid nineties as an IT guy and security was just something we all did, right? It wasn't the focus that we have now. And obviously the attacks were not nearly as sophisticated and, and with technology spreading the way it is, the amount of opportunity for attackers to take hold of systems was, was nothing compared to what it is now. Um, but between living in the IT world and moving to security, and then having a business education, you know, going to school to get business degrees and having a business background um, has given me a different perspective, especially when it comes to thinking about how the business operates and how security and IT can support the growth of the business. If you're not on the revenue-producing side, then you're typically on the cost side. So if you can help to boost the revenue side, that can be great for you. So like along the lines of what Dan said, um, you know, even just thinking about trying to solve problems like password resets, 
password resets on average studies show cost $10. Um, so depending on the number of password resets you have, that could be a significant drain to your organization if you have lots of employees. So is there a different way to do it where you could have a better user experience that's equivalent or better security, hopefully, um, than what we have today, and thinking about solving that problem differently. So I, I think, you know, for, for guys like me, and I, I don't want to speak for Dan, but I feel like uh, I love solving problems. I love looking at really complex things and breaking them down and trying to understand how to rebuild them better and make them, you know, work better and have better user experience and be, you know, more efficient and all these types of things. And, and to me, there's no way you can do that without really having curiosity into other people's worlds and how things work. You know, the topic that we're covering is networking, but a lot of times when we think about networking, we think of outside of the organization. But, you know, as much as we've been talking about technology, there are the soft skills that we've also been talking about and the willingness to engage with others and adopt different mindsets. And communication is a huge part of that, right? And, Brandon, you talked about the business and, um, you know, business enablement. And being able to communicate risk and as it relates to threat and risk measurement is hugely important. Um, so can you both talk to our listeners about the importance of communication as it relates to using metrics, asking good questions, and how that relates to the business? Dan? I'll take the CISO uh, lens to this question and talk about, you know, metrics and, and risk and how to communicate risk to stakeholders. As somebody who presents to board of directors and somebody who's obviously built a program, metrics is hard. Uh, quality metrics, I'm sorry, metrics are easy. Uh, how many firewall blocks or, or how many antivirus pings, uh, but those aren't really good things uh, to communicate actual risk. That's more about operations. Using metrics for the good and communicating risk to stakeholders is tricky. It is hard. Um, you know, finding those metrics as it relates to a number of attacks is important, but the what kind of attacks, right? The high affinity attacks, not the scripted uh, firewall blast or, or, or DDoS against a service provider that may have impacted you. Yes, there's risk there, but you, it's uncontrolled. But really, you know, having good systems that can measure, you know, how many high-quality fish did we get and how many people clicked on those and in what departments did they click. You know, going past that first level of how many and get to the who. You know, so if your finance department is clicking on phishing uh, and getting viruses on their computers more often than, let's say, somebody in, a, in another department like sales, well, that can be a real problem for the company. Not saying sales isn't important, but obviously finance is a, uh, a richer target for the bad guys. So being able to drive those metrics and then communicate how you're handling the risk um, and, and what should the stakeholders be concerned about and what can they do to help, because uh, that's also something that I've learned over time is security people are really good at scaring, but if you don't follow up with the, this is how we're going to handle it or this is how you can help reduce the risk, uh, then all you're doing is, once again, you're just scaring people. Communicating in their language is also very important. Um, taking these metrics and just blasting them, you know, throwing them into a PowerPoint and then uh, throwing them at, at people who, you know, live in spreadsheets, uh, you know, with finance numbers all day, and now you're talking about number of compromises or number of, of incidents or malware or whatever, 
it's nothing to them. They're, they're going to nod and thank you for being there. And then they're going to go on with their day and, and you will not have communicated. Uh, it will have been a unicast, right? You will have sent data their way, but there was no reception. So what you really need to do is figure out, okay, how do I communicate in their language? What, what is important to them? What language, what keywords do they use? So for instance, in my prior role in American, I talked about safety a lot and not security as much. Not because security isn't important, it obviously is a huge importance to American, but safety is, is the lingua franca. That is how the company operates, uh, you know, making sure aircraft are safe, making sure a crew and the cabin is safe, making sure the terminals are safe, and, and everything else that happens uh, within the airline. Safety is the number one paramount, and, and in some cases, you get to safety through security. In other cases, safety is its own initiative. So, so really trying to bend things in that lens and, and in my current role, really driving towards, okay, client engagement, work productivity is huge for us. So, you know, what is the impact to billable hours for malware, for instance? That's something that now all of a sudden I've got the business's interest and I'm now I'm communicating to them uh, in something that matters and not just telling them, yeah, we had 250 malware compromises of which two were considered severe, right? And then once again, they're just, okay, thanks for the information. But if you say, you know, this impacted 14 hours in this area, had a 200-hour impact in this other area, and that was all billable time, now all of a sudden you've got their interest. Uh, and they're going to say, okay, well, what can we do to try to lower that number? Yeah, to add to what Dan said, I think where it becomes critical is making things real. So Dan talked about how security people tend to scare. Um, and, you know, by the way, like vendors do this to us all the time. Uh, and it's really frustrating. The best thing to do is to make it real and make it real for that person that you're talking to. And the only way you're going to be able to make it real for that person you're communicating with is if you understand a little bit about their worldview and their perspective. So you're going to want to use concrete examples. You're going to want to use facts and, and, you know, try to work your way up the sort of the action tree or however you want to do this, but don't just start speculating or don't exaggerate. Don't make things up. Like it's much better to uh, respond to a question about like risk. How likely is something like this to happen? You know what? We don't know. We can guess. We have formulas for this. They're kind of wonky, but we can try to do this or we can just have a rational discussion to let you know that, hey, if this is the activity that you want to do and this is the level of investment that you're going to put into controls around it, then this is the risk that you're going to take. It could partially go away. You could lose all of your investment here. You could be in a situation where you are on the news, yes, but, you know, as we look at the news cycles, they tend to go pretty quick these days. So it's really important just to be frank about it, but put it in a language that that other person you're talking to can really understand. And a lot of the stuff we do in the security world is really complex. So it does require you to take the approach of let's make it simple, let's make it elegant, let's make it consumable by other people so that, you know, that means we're removing acronyms, um, we're sort of talking about concepts versus specific products or technologies and, and just focus on things like that. Brandon, Dan, this has been a great conversation. Before we wrap up, do you have any parting words for our listeners? So I think, you know, any parting words for the listeners, we've talked about a bunch of really fun topics today. And, and I think, you know, as long as you are continually learning and continually improving and you're honest with yourself on 
the things that you want to work on and what's important to you in your life. I think that that's probably the best service you can do for yourself. Um, it's making sure that, you know, you're looking at yourself, you're helping others and sort of being a good citizen throughout the industry. Dan? So just to kind of pull it all together, uh, if you are interested in expanding in your career within information security, it's super important to understand uh, not just what you do in your area, but understand uh, what you're trying to protect and what's important to those people that run those systems or those business processes. And don't be afraid of networking outside your bubble. Uh, don't be afraid of, of going up and talking to the CISO or the CIO and having a conversation with them. And as Brandon said, he, he touched on something very important it, it, is help each other. It's super important because we're all on the same side here. You know, even though the squabbles happen and there's, you know, the political power fights and all the things that happen in big companies, it's super important that, you know, we remember that we are really all on the same side and have a little bit of empathy and sympathy. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC, and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year-round. Also, subscribe to the RSAC podcast on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast app, and stay tuned for our next podcast.